Have you ever listened to my voice and thought, I'd give that guy at least a dollar? Well, good news. Now you can at patreon.com slash Corner. Supporting me on Patreon gets you access to new select and start episodes earlier than everyone else. These episodes are also longer on Patreon with conversations and segments that can't be heard anywhere else. And you can get all of this if you contribute at least $1 a month. So whether you want longer episodes, episodes released earlier, or you just want to support me out of the kindness in your heart, you can do all of that at patreon.com slash Corner. Check the link in the description. All right, I think that's it. Enjoy the show. Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts. So let's select a game and press start. Hello and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and while I usually have a guest with me, today's a little different. Without going into too much detail, I've had an incredibly stressful August, and it's been difficult for me to set aside time to write, research, record, and edit while I go through so many radical life changes at once. I sincerely apologize for the month-long absence. It wasn't planned, and I didn't expect it. I didn't have a lot of time to make a podcast that was up to my usual standards, and frankly, I wasn't in a good place mentally. I had to put myself and my personal life first at the time. Now that I'm back, though, I just wanted to say thank you, and I appreciate your patience. One of the big changes in the past month was a big move from Virginia to Georgia. Uprooting my life from the area I grew up in to an unfamiliar city and state was a big undertaking and a huge adjustment. Now that I'm settled in, though, I wanted to get an episode out. I want to test out my new recording space and get back into the mindset and rhythm of creation again. So with all that being said, today we're going to break from format a bit. Just going to say it now. If this is your first time listening to the show, please pick a different episode because this one's going to be weird. It's not representative of my usual style and format. Ordinarily, I have a guest on to talk about a specific game they find meaningful and memorable. But I'm still not at a place where I have the bandwidth to work around other people's schedules, so today it's just me. We'll go back to the usual format next episode, I promise. Since it's just me, I wanted to take the time to talk about myself and my tastes. I think this would help you, and the rest of my listeners, get a better sense of who I am and what I like. There was a prompt going around on Twitter a few weeks ago where you named your favorite game from each year, starting backwards. I got about six of those in before I remembered that I have a dedicated video game podcast and I could just record it instead of giving my abridged thoughts on Twitter. So this episode will be me doing a sort of modified version of that prompt. I think this could be fun. You get to know a little bit more about me and my perspective on the medium that I love, and I get to talk about myself uninterrupted. It's a win-win. So let's talk a little bit more about the structure of this episode before we get started. In the spirit of this episode being entirely about me and my taste in games, I will only be covering games from the year I was born to the year I am recording this. So that's one favorite game of mine from each year from 1996 to 2022. While I talk about these games, please keep in mind that this is a podcast series about the most meaningful and memorable video games. This episode isn't titled The Best Games of Each Year. I am strictly talking about my favorite games and why I love them. And this is about my relationship with specific games. This isn't about pitting video games against each other. And your emotional connection to a game isn't strictly because of how well made it is. How you feel about a game isn't solely defined by the quality of the product. Outside factors like taste, what was going on in your life, your relationships, who was around while you played it, that can all strengthen a connection. So if it seems like I'm overlooking games, I mean, I might be. I don't care about having an analytical discussion. I'm just here to have an emotional one. So, like I said, we're starting from 1996. Sorry to the listeners and previous guests who are older than me. Jared, I love Earthbound. Dre, I love Mario 3. Tom, A Link to the Past is wonderful, but they all came out before I was born. 
I think my choice of having guests that are either my bisexual peers or DILFs is catching up to me. If this episode does well, or if I get good feedback on it, I'll consider doing a follow-up where I cover video games from the years before I was born the next time I find myself in a weird place. I'll also use that time to update and revise any choices I picked on this episode. I'm an extremely indecisive person, and I'm learning more about myself every day. It's also possible that I literally just forgot about a game. I am incredibly stupid. And when you hear some of these picks, you'll probably agree. On that note, let's get started. Alright, a couple of quick ground rules. I can only pick one game for each year. I'm not going to do any ties. More than one meaningful game can come out in a year. I'm sure I'll shout them out, but I can't be a coward and do ties. I have to pick one game for each year. Uh, Rule number two, no remakes, no re-releases, and no special editions, no definitive editions, none of that shit. I'm going to go off the original year a game was released. If a game was remade or a new version was released later, I can't do that unless the game was altered to the point of complete transformation like it was with Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VII Remake. Ports, remasters, even the third versions of Pokemon games are going to be off the table, even if they're the definitive editions like how Platinum is better than Pokemon Diamond and Pearl in my eyes. I can't do the 2002 version of Resident Evil over the 1996 one. I can't do the subsistence version of Metal Gear Solid 3 over the original Metal Gear Solid 3. We're going to go off the original versions of games. Lastly, I'm going to base my choices off of the American release dates because we're number one. No, no, not not really. A lot of my picks are based around the time and place in which they were played, and I think it would betray the spirit of this exercise if I just used a release date from a territory that wasn't my own. All right, let's get started. We begin our journey in 1996, the year I was born. If 69 is the sexiest number, then 96 is the saddest. They're both hard, but they can't touch. It's tragic. 1996 was also the launch of the Nintendo 64, and with that, Super Mario 64. It may be the safe, boring answer, but it's the honest one. The game's legacy speaks for itself. Even when I played it as recently as 2020, I was still super impressed with how much of it held up. Other games came out that year that I have a strong emotional attachment toward, like Pokemon Red and Blue and Mario Kart 64, but I feel a stronger connection to Mario 64, and I think it holds up a lot better than other games from that year. It has staying power in my heart, and as an actual video game. Nineteen ninety-seven was an embarrassment of riches for software. This was a year with games like Castlevania Symphony of the Night, Goldeneye 007, Gran Turismo, and Diablo. But ultimately I agonized about having to choose between two games that mean the world to me. I think Final Fantasy VII is an incredible game, and I think its stories and themes hold up surprisingly well. The cast of characters are surprisingly deep and well realized, and the soundtrack is one of my very favorites. But it's also a game that I came to surprisingly late. I never actually played it in its entirety until 2020 during the early months of the pandemic. It's a testament to Final Fantasy VII that I love it so much despite coming to it so late, but ultimately, the game from this year that means the most to me is going to be the one that I grew up with. One of the very first games I ever played, and it's one that I love to this day. Star Fox 64. don't think I can overstate my love for this game. It's just simple enough that a young kid like me could instantly pick up and play it, but also replayable and challenging enough to be rewarding for experienced players too. I never fully understood the branching paths and how my brothers managed to unlock them, but as a kid I thought that idea was so mind-blowing. It was the first time I had seen alternate story beats depending on how you played the game. 
you could do things out of order in Zelda and Mario games at the time, but different levels entirely, different character interactions, branching paths, that was all wholly unique to me. My brothers replayed the game so much that certain lines of dialogue still pop into my head randomly every once in a while. Hey Einstein, I'm on your side! And the music? God, God, I love it. The Nintendo 64 sound font still feels like home to me. It's about time you showed up, Fox. You're the only hope for our world. I'll do my best. Andros won't have his way with me. I'm not going to drag out what my favorite game of the year was for 1998. It's The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. I would eventually play other incredible games from that year, like Metal Gear Solid and Half-Life, but this game was there for me from the very start. If you made me point to a childhood-defining video game, it would be this one. Star Fox 64 may have been easier for me to play as a kid, but this game inspired my imagination. This one was formative. This was the kind of game that I thought about when I wasn't watching someone play it or playing it myself. The game conveyed moods in a way that I didn't see other games do at the time. Sometimes it felt adventurous, sometimes it felt melancholy or scary or tragic, it wasn't just doing one thing. For years, I called Ocarina of Time my favorite game, partially because of the nostalgia and partially because of the actual quality, but also because it was formative in the sense that it had a sense of maturity that other games in my home didn't. Weirdly enough, I haven't played a lot of games released in 1999. I know a lot of significant games were released around that time, but for some reason I just missed out on a lot of them. I'll try to correct this in the very near future, but for now, my pick for favorite game of 1999 is the original Super Smash Bros. on Nintendo 64. A little bit of background. I've always had sleeping problems, even when I was a small kid. I have a lot of memories of me as a child getting up at maybe 3 or 4 in the morning, long before anybody else would wake up and just hanging out in the rec room watching TV or playing video games. Most of the time there wasn't anything interesting to a small kid on TV at that time, so I would usually just play video games, and it was almost always Super Smash Bros. Unlike other games on this list, I don't really have an inclination to ever revisit it, especially since subsequent entries have rendered it obsolete. Even though all the other versions of this game are better, I will always feel an attachment to this game because it gave me countless hours of entertainment in what should have been the loneliest time of day. Alright, we're in the year 2000 now. We're only 5 games in, but I'm comfortable calling this my favorite video game of all time. Basically everything I love about The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is improved upon in its sequel. The Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask. It's a true sequel to me that way. Ocarina of Time had me understand the way games can convey atmosphere and make you feel things beyond, oh, this is fun. But I think Majora's Mask was the first thing that made me feel dread in a story. I obviously wouldn't understand heavier existential ideas until I was much older, but the idea that the hero could not help everybody in a single cycle, having to choose to sacrifice one thing in favor of another, it all felt too real to me as a kid. 
Compound that with the horror elements like painful body transformations, horrifying creature designs, cursed villages, and just overall miserable vibes, and you have a game that has stuck with me forever. I could talk about the amazing things that this game does and why it continues to mean so much to me, but I think that's what future episodes are for, so we'll just come back to it later. If it isn't evident to you at this point, I was 100% a Nintendo kid. I just named five Nintendo 64 games in a row. Let's see if 2001 changes anything. 2001 represents a dramatic shift in the culture of the world. The new millennium may have begun in the year 2000, but the tone of the 21st century wouldn't be set until the following year. Major events impacted us culturally and spiritually, and on September 11th, Jay-Z released The Blueprint, his sixth studio album. As for video games, a lot changed too. The Xbox and GameCube both released in North America in November of that year. One major launch title on the Xbox, Halo Combat Evolved, begins to evolve into something of a cultural phenomenon. Grand Theft Auto 3 is released and dramatically shifts the tone and style of games for decades to come. Many games are released that year that have made a tremendous impact on my life. I have fond, formative memories surrounding Super Smash Bros. Melee, SSX Tricky, Sonic Adventure 2, and Jack and Daxter. Games like Max Payne and Eco are also tremendous games in my eyes that serve as stylistic and truly great games in a new generation. But if I had to pick a favorite video game from that year, it would absolutely be Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. There is perhaps no video game that feels more of the times while also being completely transgressive. Lately, I've been feeling a greater appreciation for subversive storytelling that challenges itself as well as the viewer. I don't know if media literacy is getting worse or if bad opinions are just getting more effective platforms, but it seems like any work of art that remotely challenges the viewer is perceived as an ideological and moral failure. I'm not saying a work is inherently good if it is subversive or challenges your relationship with the series, but as Jared and I discussed in the Earthbound episode, I have a fondness for auteurs revisiting their worlds from a new perspective and challenging their audience to do the same. Whether it's Twin Peaks The Return, The Evangelion Rebuilds, or even Final Fantasy VII Remake, I love this phenomenon, for the most part. The backlash to Metal Gear Solid 2 feels like it was an early version of what would come to happen with things like The Last Jedi or The Last of Us Part II. Nerds getting mad that their power fantasy is being slightly challenged. I think that kind of artist defiance is admirable. A creator is willing to interrogate their work and is asking the audience to examine their relationship with it. It's not surprising that these things get such intense backlash, but it does expose a certain kind of consumer entitlement every time it happens, whether that's intentional or not. I think stories like Metal Gear Solid 2 inspire open-minded people to expand their appreciation of art and develop a healthier relationship with it. So even though it's a game that came into my life more recently, I'm willing to call it my favorite game of 2001 for being an effective work of art. I may not have put as many hours into it as Melee, it may not have had a chow garden like Sonic Adventure 2, but it is a game that pushes boundaries and was, in part, an influence on me to create a podcast where I talk about the artistic value of video games. And that's only one aspect of Metal Gear Solid 2. I also appreciate its anti-war themes, both in the wake of 9-11 at its release and today as its anxieties about information control have come into fruition. It's an incredibly detailed game from the game design to its themes and its impact on the industry and on myself cannot be overstated. Also, have you ever seen the cover art for this game? It's possibly the best box art of all time. Raiden, turn the game console off right now. What did you say? The mission is a failure. Cut the power right now. What's wrong with you? Don't worry, it's a game. It's a game just like usual. You'll ruin your eyes playing so close to the TV. What are you talking about? 
2002 was another great year in gaming, but I don't think there's a single video game that year that I've played as much as Kingdom Hearts. I think the soundtrack alone would make this my pick. Yokoshima Mora's score is incredible. It really wouldn't matter if the game held up otherwise, but I think it does for the most part. And I think there's something to be said for how simple and clean the game's narrative and gameplay is relative to the rest of the series. As a kid, I had no frame of reference for Final Fantasy at the time, but I do have to give the game credit for introducing me to that series and its characters. I was mainly in it for the cool weapons and the Disney characters, and I have to take the time to admire how the game could have been so much worse. It is a wild series with some bizarre choices, but I think given the core concept of anime-looking characters interacting with Final Fantasy and Disney characters, it is so much closer to the best version of what that can be than the worst. It's far from devoid of fan service, but it could have been something so much more trite and commercial. It has an obvious, strong creative vision behind it. I really struggled with picking my favorite game from 2003 because it was such a stacked year. The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, those are some of my favorite games ever, and I'd love to do episodes on both of these games in the future. Ultimately though, I have to give it to Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, specifically Sapphire, which was a game I got on my 7th birthday. This was the first Pokemon game I ever owned, one that was entirely mine. Like a lot of kids my age, Pokemon rocked my world as a child, but it was something I got into through my older brothers, so most of the Pokemon stuff that I saw was theirs. This was the first time that I had something Pokemon related entirely to myself, and I adored it. I still think Generation 3 is one of the best Pokemon generations, and it is certainly the one I feel the most emotional attachment towards. People made fun of the Trumpety Ska adjacent music at the time, but I loved it. As a kid, the leap from the Game Boy to the Game Boy Advance felt huge, and the visuals and colors seemed to finally line up more with the anime. I also love the Pokemon designs from that generation, even if a lot of them feel of the times in retrospect. I still remember my preferred team composition. Blaziken, Manectric, Agron, Crawdont, Absol, and Flygon. God, I love Gen 3 so much. I'd love to revisit it soon. I know Emerald is the better game, and it's the version that I replay each time, but Sapphire was the game that shifted my relationship with Pokemon in a radical way, and I appreciate it for that. As for 2004, until a year ago, I'd be pretty confident in saying it was Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, but now... I think it may actually be Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. I won't talk too much about this pick because my first episode of the show already covered a lot of my thoughts on it. Even though I only recently played it, I have a strong emotional connection to it and I consider it one of my favorite games ever. Shout out to Manu for getting me into this series. Love you buddy. And now 2005. This one was hard. It's another tremendous year for video games. I think Pokemon Emerald was actually better than Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire but I picked Sapphire because of the emotional connection, and I don't want to repeat. In my last solo episode, I talked about Shadow of the Colossus, and I recommend you check it out if you haven't already played it. It's a monumental game, and I'm just one of the many people that this game left an impact on. But I can't say for certain that even that is my favorite video game from 2005. There's Resident Evil 4, that's also one of my favorite games, but that was a game I didn't even get around to until last year. As much as I love it, I don't have the formative memories these other games have given me. So I guess when I get down to it, my favorite game from 2005 is Star Wars Battlefront 2. This is partially because of how great the game is, but also because of how much my brothers and I played that game together. And then years later, during the hype cycle leading up to The Force Awakens, my best friends and I played Battlefront 2 Classic together a lot. 
It was a game that was with me in two separate stages of my life, one as a child and one as an adult. It stood the test of time. In many ways, this game is more representative of my relationship with Star Wars than some of the movies. Just like the simulation. It was hard for me to pick a great game from 2006. For a while, I was agonizing between Kingdom Hearts 2 and Zelda Twilight Princess. But I think another title means just a little bit more to me. The often overlooked Rockstar game, Bully. Rockstar has made plenty of great open world games, but I always appreciated how this one tried to do something different. Building a game around teenagers in a boarding school instead of doing the open world crime dramas was a fun concept. In an era where everything was becoming more dark and more serious, a studio known for making dark, edgy games briefly opted to go a more juvenile direction. I admire that. I also really like the soundtrack to this game. Alright, time for 2007. Jesus, what a year. This episode was a mistake. Don't crucify me for my picks. I'm not even fully confident in a lot of them at this point. I'm not going to try and cheat and pick all of the orange box. Though if I could, that would be the obvious pick. Like I said, I'm only going to stick to one single game. So I'm going to pick one game from the orange box. Team Fortress 2, which was the first online shooter that I ever really got into. This is one of those games that I probably have more hours in than any other video game ever. I love it a lot. This is also a game that has a sort of community and ubiquity that goes beyond the actual act of playing the game. Countless hours and hours and hours of my life watching YouTube videos about these characters made in Gmod and Source Filmmaker. Nope. Team Fortress 2 is a great game, but my relationship with it is beyond the game. It's just a representation of creativity and fan community. I love it. I love it to death. I would do anything to go back and play it in this prime again. What are you, president of his fan club? <laughs> no. That would be your mother. What the? Wait, wait. Uh, Indeed. And now he's here to f us. So listen up, boy. Or pornography starring your mother will be the second worst thing that happens to you today. Oh. <laughs> Give me that. I spent a lot of time thinking of my favorite video game from 2008. Growing up, I tended to get into consoles a little bit later into their life cycles, so there wasn't a lot of games I remember playing in 2008 specifically. I came to a lot of the games that came out that year later. Super Smash Bros. Brawl may be one of my most played games ever, but I do see the ways that it is underwhelming in retrospect. Metal Gear Solid 4 is a great game, but ultimately it is my least favorite game in the Metal Gear franchise. Not because it isn't good, but because of how I just find the other games better. And looking at the list of games from 2008, that's kind of a sentiment I think about a lot of the games that released that year. I'm not that wild about GTA 4, especially compared to its predecessors and its sequel. Mario Kart Wii isn't as good as the subsequent Mario Kart games. And Left 4 Dead was kind of made redundant by Left 4 Dead 2. But do you know what game series had a definitive entry to me that year? Burnout. Burnout Paradise. This game has to be one of my favorite uses of the open world space. I love how I could progress the game how I want it to. I loved how the challenges all took place on one giant map. I loved doing the showtime mode and causing as much mayhem as possible. I just loved crashing my car and seeing it fall apart in slow motion. The way this game depicted destruction was just hilarious to me. And my only major issue with this game is having to hear a Guns N' Roses song every time I booted it up. I fucking hate Guns N' Roses. I fucking hate them so much. I hate Axl Rose. It's fucking bullshit, man. I hate him. I hate them so much. I hate them. 
For 2009, it wasn't a necessarily bad year for video games by any means, but I really do not have to struggle to think about this one. Of all the games I played from that year, it's easily Batman Arkham Asylum. I've loved comic book characters and superheroes my entire life. I am feeling a little burned out on them as of recently, but as a kid, I just could not get enough of them. Batman Arkham Asylum felt like the first truly great Batman game of my lifetime. Spider-Man really nailed the open world format for a few video games there. The Spider-Man 2 video game from 2004. Ultimate Spider-Man was also a great open world game. But this is the first time that I saw it happen with Batman. Arkham Asylum is great. It was one of my first forays into the Metroidvania style of games, if you want to call it that. Arkham Asylum is great. I don't really need to harp on it. I've talked about this on two different episodes now, but 2010 was a stacked year for video games. I love Mario Galaxy 2. Red Dead Redemption is incredible. And I love Mass Effect 2. I'm sorry, Maddie, But my favorite video game from 2010 has to be Fallout New Vegas. From where you're kneeling must seem like an 18-carat run of bad luck. Truth is, the game was rigged from the start. If you want to hear more of my thoughts about Fallout New Vegas, you can listen to my episode that I did with Will. It's the second episode of the show. I really do not feel the need to harp on it. There's so many thoughts out there on Fallout New Vegas. Let's just move on to 2011. What in the goddamn? 2011 was a year where a bunch of good sequels came out that built on the promise of the first game. Infamous 2? Better than the first. Arkham City? I like it even more than Arkham Asylum. But the best sequel and my favorite game from that year is easily Portal 2. Sometimes a game loses something by going bigger, but I think Portal 2 is an overall improvement in almost every single way. J.K. Simmons as Cave Johnson and Steven Merchant as Wheatley are great additions to the cast, and the multiplayer felt revelatory at the time. I played through the multiplayer of this game with multiple people in my life, and I just have a lot of great memories of that. So yeah, Portal 2 for 2011. Don't even have to think about it. Those of you helping us test the repulsion gel today, just follow the blue line on the floor. Those of you who volunteered to be injected with praying mantis DNA, I've got some good news and some bad news. Bad news is we're postponing those tests indefinitely. Good news is we've got a much better test for you, fighting an army of mantis men. Pick up a rifle and follow the yellow line. You'll know when the test starts. As for 2012, I struggled with this a little bit. Was it Hotline Miami? What about the Walking Dead video game? Ultimately though, I settled on Pokemon Black and White 2. Pokemon Black and White 2 is probably my favorite Pokemon game since the Gen 3 games. The music, the presentation, the story, the Pokemon designs, I just really think that it is really well realized. I really want to revisit this one. I don't know if this is a hot take or a weird take, but I kind of miss the sprites for Pokemon. I really think this one nailed the visual design for the series, and I kind of want to go back to that. I'm not going to harp on that though, that's for another day. Let's move on to 2013. I'm not really thrilled with 2013 for video games. I can't really tell you why. Obviously, I love games like GTA V and Super Mario 3D World. I'm not going to dismiss those. But it was kind of a weird transitional year where we were sort of moving from the Xbox 360 to the Xbox One, the PlayStation 3 to the PlayStation 4. And the Wii U sort of put Nintendo in a weird spot. So when I think about what the best video game of 2013 was, I'm pretty sure it's The Last of Us. I don't feel like I have to spend too much time explaining The Last of Us. It's kind of one of those like video games basically everybody knows about if you know anything about video games. 
it feels like preaching to the choir. If you know anything about video games, or if you're listening to a video game podcast for any other reason besides you're my friend, you probably know the deal with this game. I like it a lot. Only one problem. Right there. To be continued. I hate cliffhangers. Let's move on to 2014. Uh, This was a year where I went away to college, so I haven't really played a lot of games from this year, and frankly, I'm not really in a hurry to. I like Middle-Earth Shadow of Mordor. The nemesis system in that game is great. I wish more games could do it. Uh, I have a lot of hours in that game just messing with that, but was it my favorite? I I don't know. I think Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze is the better game. I like the game a lot. I think it's great. It's not one I have a ton of emotional investment in, but it is just a damn great platformer, and it's one that I have recommended to so many people who enjoy platforming games because it feels like it was overlooked. Now that it's on the Switch, a lot more people have played it, and I encourage you to play it too. If you like platforming video games, Donkey Kong in general, Nintendo games, challenging video games, it's got something for you probably. Check it out. sound a little bit disconnected for the past few years, but 2015 is when things start to get interesting again. It was actually a shockingly difficult time trying to pick what my favorite game from this year was. I love Undertale a lot. It was really difficult for me to pick a favorite game from this year because I'm a huge Yakuza evangelist. I mean the video games, not the real life organization. Bloodborne is also an incredible game, and I have a lot of emotional baggage wrapped up in it. Yakuza 0 is incredible. I think everybody should play that game. But I think I'm going to ultimately go with Bloodborne because that means more to me because of the circumstances in which I played it. I spent dozens of hours taking turns playing this game with a friend in college at our dorms. We switched the controller each time we died. We were working together to try our best to figure things out on our own without a guide. And we could slowly and surely feel ourselves getting better at the game over time. You can't really replicate an experience like that in isolation. The game itself is really damn good, but... There's a social component to that experience that sets it over the edge for me. We are born of the blood, made men by the blood, undone by the blood. Our eyes are yet to open. Fear the old blood. Yeah, I actually think I really like doing this episode. Uh, I love talking about the emotional connection with games because it makes my picks critique-proof. If I call something a great game, you can argue with me, but if I talk about how I love a game partially because of how it affected a friendship, you're going to be an asshole for saying I have bad taste. Anyway, yeah, Bloodborne, my favorite game from 2015. Alright, 2016. Once again, I'm agonizing over two games, Overwatch and Stardew Valley, and I don't do ties. Both of these are games that I've sunk hundreds of hours into and I've played during the same sort of stage in my life. Let me work this out out loud. Bloodborne and Overwatch sort of have the same story for me emotionally. There's a social component to Overwatch where I pass the controller back and forth with my college friend, and that makes it a deeply meaningful game to me. At a point, playing this game became therapy. It was something simple that we could do after a bad week and decompress while we talk about life and listen to new music together. It's an experience I may never be able to recreate again. However, the thing about Overwatch 
is that it slowly got worse for me over time. This is the third episode in a row that I mentioned it, so I won't get too deep into it. But if you know, you know. And do I want to give Activision Blizzard the dub over Concerned Ape, who single-handedly developed the game himself? Unlike Overwatch, Stardew Valley actually improved over time, and I'm excited for what Concerned Ape's next game will be, and I'm worried about what Overwatch 2 is going to become. I don't want to devalue my experience with Overwatch because I eventually fell off of it, but I got two good years in with that game and a ton of amazing memories with it. I can't discount that. Stardew Valley is more my kind of game though, and I also have a lot of emotions tied up in it. I played it so much during my senior year of college. It was a simple comfort as I got out of a bad relationship at the time. It made the sleepy burnout of my last year at college tolerable. Was it a healthy way to cope with those things? Who's to say? I wasn't exactly like my boy toy Shane in the game, but saying it out loud, it is kind of sad that I was using video games to deal with problems that should have been dealt with in healthier ways. On the other hand, I don't think this podcast would have existed in this form without this game. And I was a broke college kid in a small, isolated town. What else was I supposed to do to cope? Have you ever used the mental health resources at a university? Video games are probably the healthier way to deal with my problems. Anyway, I'm better now. Let's not harp on that. Uh, Stardew Valley is a game where you... Welcome back. After some more private rambling, I have ultimately decided that Stardew Valley was my personal favorite game of 2016. I think I talked about Overwatch enough to make my feelings about it clear. Giving one game the distinction of favorite doesn't delegitimize my experience with the other. Overwatch delegitimized itself, am I right? Haha, <laughs> 2017 now. The thing that makes The Legend of Zelda my favorite video game series is how it can be anything it wants to be without betraying the essence of it or being unfamiliar. This isn't a series that doesn't just evolve, it transforms. And when it transforms, it often alters the trajectory of the game industry in the process. Breath of the Wild is one of the very best games ever to me because it takes the series in a new direction and dares an industry bloated with open world games that feel like busy work to dream differently. Make worlds that are fun to explore. Don't hold the player's hand. Let them feel like they're discovering new things. This was a significant change. It really felt revelatory even though its philosophy was that it was going back to basics. I love this game. I feel like everyone in the world's played this game. I don't really need to harp on it too much. This is a game that so many people have played, I don't feel the need to talk about it too much. Just know that it's one of my favorites ever, and I hope that I get to talk about it more on the show soon. Speaking of open world games, let's talk about 2018. Breath of the Wild marked the beginning of a new approach to video games that we're still growing into. Conversely, Red Dead Redemption 2 feels like a grand last ride of the open world formula that Rockstar themselves popularized in the early 2000s with Grand Theft Auto 3. I'm not saying it was intended that way, but most open world games have certainly felt quaint in the shadow of both this and Breath of the Wild. With Red Dead Redemption 2, it just sort of feels like the swan song of that kind of formula of game. It feels like maturation, like even Rockstar is sort of ready to move on from this and try and do something new. That's probably why it's taken them so long to create Grand Theft Auto 6, besides the fact that Grand Theft Auto 5 is such an easy moneymaker for them. What can a new Grand Theft Auto game do that can feel refreshing in this new video game environment that we're living in? I think these are questions that they've had to ask themselves, and I'm pretty sure that's why it's taken so long for them to come up with something new. Anyway, let's do 2019 now. In the last few years, we've seen the seeds that The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask planted over 20 years ago finally bloom. 
the Groundhog Day style of video games has become more and more popular in recent years. Games like Returnal and Deathloop built their plot and gameplay around it. The Forgotten City explores it in a compelling way. And even total pieces of shit like 12 minutes take a stab at it. But Outer Wild stands out to me as the best instance of this since the original Majora's Mask. I've said this in my last solo episode. Outer Wilds is an incredible, singular experience. You really should just play it for yourself to see what it's about. It's got a learning curve. Don't let the controls intimidate you. You'll learn. You'll adjust. You'll get used to it. And the game encourages you to keep trying and trying over and over again at your own pace. Just please check this game out for yourself. I love Outer Wilds so much. Yeah, I know I'm like the millionth person that said that Outer Wilds is an incredible game while talking very vaguely about it, but it, it is a game that you just truly have to experience for yourself. I really don't know what else to say. All right, 2020. 2020 was a rare year where I was actually playing new releases as they came out instead of just waiting for a price drop. I don't think I have to explain why I had time to catch up on new releases, so I won't, but I played so many great new games in 2020 that continue to stick with me. I put hours and hours and hours into Animal Crossing New Horizons like everyone else. The Tony Hawk Pro Skater 1 and 2 remake was a perfect decompressor as I was dealing with a stressful remote job. Doom Eternal kicked ass. Ghost of Tsushima is one of the better open world games I've played in a while. And I found myself on the more positive end of controversial games like Final Fantasy VII Remake and The Last of Us Part II. As much as I liked all of these games though, none of them come close to touching Hades. I love almost every single thing about Hades. Hades is so good. It's just great video game writing, great soundtrack, great voice acting, and an incredible gameplay loop that is instantly fun from basically the minute you start playing it. If you haven't played Hades, I don't know what you're doing. If you like video games at all, this is the type of video game that you should be playing. I, it's not a game that is for everyone, but it does feel like what video games should be. It's interactivity. The way that it tells its story and the way that it uses game mechanics to progress that story, that's what the potential of video games is to me. And to put it simply, Hades is what I love about video games. It's just terrific. I love it so much. 2021, my favorite game was Metroid Dread. I haven't played every big release of 2021 even now, but I feel pretty confident that Metroid Dread will remain one of my favorites for a while. There's no deep, emotional reason why this one stands out as my favorite, it's just a damn good video game. It took me years to really get into the exploration style of games that Metroid popularized, but for some reason they finally clicked with me a few years ago. And Metroid Dread is a beautiful, modern take on that style. It's so good to just have a game that's so mechanically satisfying. It just felt so good to play as Samus in that game, it felt good to feel myself get more and more powerful. kind of game where moving the character around feels satisfying. I love it. I love it a lot. And this game is accessible even if you haven't played the other Metroid games. It's probably actually more beginner friendly than a lot of them. So if you are trying to dip your toes into this kind of genre of games or in this series in general, this isn't a terrible place to start. I personally think it's great for newcomers. So if you're unsure, check it out. Which brings us to this year, 2022, the year I'm recording this. It's not a done deal yet, 
something could happen. My favorite video game of 2022, so far, should come as no surprise to returning listeners. I've mentioned it in literally every single episode of the show up to this point. It's Elden Ring, y'all. I'd love to do an episode where I go more in depth on this game and why it completely melted my brain, but I'll give you the abridged version. It feels like the first huge example of the Breath of the Wild formula being expanded upon. Very little in the way of guidance, just going off of vibes and a sense of discovery. It feels like a classic game with modern trappings, and I adore it for that. Even though all FromSoft games are esoteric in their own ways, this feels like it's both their least disciplined game and yet their most accessible. What I mean is that there's very deliberate choices in level design in other From Software games, especially those directed by Hidetaka Miyazaki. Conscious level design. Some games have experimental sections for sure, but there's a gauntlet kind of feeling to those games, like you're going through fucked up haunted houses back to back. Elden Ring feels like a living, or rather dying, world that you're discovering piece by piece. The smart level design is still present in the major dungeons, but for the most part, the sense of discovery makes this a completely different kind of game. I love that you can get as much out of this game as you want to. A lot of the experience is just there if you want it. So much of it is just purely optional, but you have to seek it out. It's not just looking for points on a map like an Ubisoft open world game. The other thing that really takes this game to another level for me was the social component. I talked about this game in multiple group chats. I have a dedicated Elden Ring group chat I'm in. I was fully obsessed for months, and my love still persists as I'm months removed from my first playthrough. I could talk about this game for hours, and I hope you get to hear me talk about it for hours soon. Alright, so those are my favorite games from each year, starting from the year I was born. Uh, Just some more tidbits, because I love to color things in a little bit more than I have to. Of the 27 games mentioned, my absolute favorite game is Zelda Majora's Mask, which is also my favorite game of all time. If I had to pick a least favorite, it would be the original Super Smash Bros. The company most represented on here is Nintendo. They published 10 out of the 27 games discussed. The most represented series is The Legend of Zelda with three games listed, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, and Breath of the Wild. The second most represented series is a tie between Pokemon and Metal Gear Solid, both of them with two games each. My most played game is Team Fortress 2, which according to Steam I have played for 306.5 hours. I have to imagine that Stardew Valley is my second most played. Just a few things I thought was worth mentioning. That concludes the main segment for the show, but we still have a couple more things to talk about, so let's get into the next segment, No Country for Old Games. Typically when I do this segment, I talk about how widely available the game we discussed is. But since we talked about 27 games, I just figured I'd do a lightning round talking about whether or not each individual game is available to currently play or purchase. Mario 64, Star Fox 64, Ocarina of Time, and Majora's Mask can all be played on the Nintendo Switch Online service on the premium tier, but none are currently widely available to purchase. There's also no legal way to play the original Super Smash Bros. Nor is there a way to play Metal Gear Solid 2 due to the licensing issues with the archive footage used in certain cutscenes. Kingdom Hearts is widely available. There's currently no legal way to play Pokemon Sapphire, and Metal Gear Solid 3 has been taken off all storefronts for the same reason as MGS2. Surprisingly, Star Wars Battlefront 2 Classic is still available to buy and play on PC, as is Bully and Team Fortress 2. Burnout Paradise is still widely available to play, as is Batman Arkham Asylum because they were ported and remastered on newer consoles. Fallout New Vegas can still be bought and played on PC. Portal 2 is on PC, Switch, and the Xbox 360 version is backwards compatible. 
Pokemon Black 2 and White 2 are not widely available games, and they are actually the most recent game on this list to not be widely available. The Last of Us is available on PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, and a remake was recently released for PS5, which I think is excessive since the PS4 version is backwards compatible on PS5, and it's less than a decade old, but I digress. Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze is available to purchase on Switch, Bloodborne can still be purchased and played on the PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5. Stardew Valley is still widely available on most consoles as well as PC, and is also available to play on mobile devices, so I think this is actually the most widely available game to play of the ones I listed. Zelda Breath of the Wild is still widely available on Switch, it's the fourth best selling game on the console, so of course it is. Red Dead Redemption 2 is widely available on consoles and PC, has its Outer Wilds and Hades. Metroid Dread is readily available on the Switch. And lastly, Elden Ring is of course widely available. It is the second best selling game of 2022 after Multiverses after all. So to recap, out of the 27 games, only five aren't available to legally purchase or play without resorting to the secondary market. Publishers with the most knows, Nintendo, followed by Konami, which is consistent with my complaints in previous episodes. Honestly, it's pretty impressive that the vast majority of these games are available to play in some form but there's frankly no excuse for why the games that aren't available can't be purchased or played easily. Our best advice is to seek alternative means to play these games. All right, we talked about these games. We talked about their availability. Enough about me. Let's read some listener comments. In preparation for this episode, I actually asked two questions on the Select and Start Twitter page. One of them was, what is your favorite video game from the year you were born? Manu, aka Manuclear Bomb, my good friend, and the very first guest on the show, replied, For the 1984 born, it looks to be Tetris. Mark Normandin responded, 1986 is like the year of legendary new franchises that would have better sequels, so this is rough. Some favorites are Metroid, Zanak, Bubble Bobble, Outrun, Fantasy Zone, Salamander. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. Corp Funke replied, Tonight at 11. Do- The other question I asked listeners was, what do you think was the best year of all time for video games, and why? Our previous guest and my good friend Dre, aka at Pizza Dinosaur, said, 1987 is a Genesis year for lots of series that are still relevant today. Final Fantasy, Fantasy Star, Contra, Metal Gear, Mega Man, Double Dragon, and Shinobi are all still relevant. Sega was killing it at the arcade with OutRun and Afterburner. Just incredible. At Monotone Gents said, As a kid, 1995, the apex of the 16-bit era. PlayStation? What's that? Look at all this great stuff on Super NES. As an adult, 2017, the year where the Switch relit something for me missing prior. The schedule was crammed with hits, and even more came out in the years since. At Tell the Moon Dog said, 2002, Morrowind, Vice City, Mafia, Neverwinter Nights, Medieval Total War, Jedi Knight 2. At Oliver Scarlin said, If one is talking game changers, 1996 gave us Tomb Raider, Pokemon, Quake, Duke Nukem, Mario 64, and Mario Kart. Tom Joad, the Wet Sprocket, aka at Adequate Scott, said, I was PC only in the PS1 slash PS2 eras, but my answer is 1998. The FPS world opened strong with Unreal showing us things we've never seen before. Sin, such as it was, gave us an idea of game environments that weren't wholly abstract. Then Half-Life brings the hammer down. StarCraft takes over the RTS genre. Activision's Battlezone reboot makes a seemingly impossible gameplay experience that's never really been replicated. 
Grim Fandango sends the LucasArts adventure out on a high note, and Rainbow Six invents a subgenre. It's full of lasts and first. Grim Fandango has the same year as Trespasser, a thing that's barely a game, but you can see it in Breath of the Wild. The X-Files game officially ends the era of FMV games, but also here's Rainbow Six, who's ascended as a forever game. I really like this response because he was speaking purely from the perspective of computer games and gave a thoughtful answer with a robust list of games. To that point, a separate comment from at John Sahor. 07 and 17 were bonkers, but I don't know how it's not 98. Metal Gear Solid, Ocarina of Time, Half-Life, Fallout 2, StarCraft, Crash 3, Banjo-Kazooie, Rogue Squadron, Tekken 3, Sonic Adventure, Panzer Dragoon Saga, NFL Blitz, the North American debut of Pokemon, Unreal, Baldur's Gate, Grim Fandango. Speaking as Kiefer again, God, what a stacked year. I'm inclined to agree with the year 1998. It feels like the year we finally understand navigating 3D spaces, pushing the capabilities of what video games are capable of to a new level. That's going to do it for listener comments. If you want to tell me your favorite game from the year you were born, or give your thoughts on what the best year for gaming was, submit a comment or send me a message on the show's official Twitter page, at SelectPodStart, and I might read it on the show. All right, let's move on to the last segment. All right, time to talk about my recommendations. Typically, at the end of each episode, the guests and I will offer recommendations to the listeners that reveal a bit more about our taste and connect to the game in some way. But since it's just me, there are no such rules and I can just recommend whatever I want. In the spirit of the rest of the episode, I want my listeners to get to know me better and understand my taste, so I'll list some of my favorite things that aren't video games. Let's start with my favorite movie. I consider my favorite film of all time to be The Royal Tenenbaums. It's a 2001 film directed by Wes Anderson. If you're not remotely familiar with the movie, think of it as a proto-arrested development comedy drama about an emotionally immature family dealing with the damage their absentee dad inflicted on them. It's funny, it's sad, and it's got one of the most formative soundtracks to me in terms of how it's influenced my taste. I talk more about it here, but I'm actually going to be discussing this movie and its soundtrack at length on another podcast. Hear me talk about this movie, what it means to me, and how much I love its soundtrack on my buddy Eric's podcast, Soundtracker. My episode will be out on September 16th. I don't really know when this episode of my own will be out in relation to that, but keep an eye out for it. Please look it up when you get the chance. Soundtracker is one of my favorite podcasts, and you should definitely listen to the episodes that I'm not featured in too. As for the Royal Tenenbaums and how you can watch it, the movie balances between streaming services pretty frequently, but as of the time of this recording, it's available to stream on Hulu. Please check it out. Now for favorite TV shows. It feels a bit silly to recommend shows like Twin Peaks and Better Call Saul and Community or Avatar The Last Airbender because they have huge audiences already. So I'm going to recommend a show that I consider a favorite that doesn't get the love those shows get. It's called You're the Worst. It's sort of a romantic comedy drama series about fucked up people trying to work through their emotions and pursue love with other fucked up people. It's got Aya Cash in it, who you may know as the villain of season two of The Boys. She's incredible in it. It's just a huge acting showcase for her. The show is a great exploration of depression and mental illness and just dealing with the negative emotions of life and depicting them realistically, but also hilariously. The show's moving and hilarious at the same time. It's hard to pitch it without it sounding kind of generic, but when you watch it, you kind of realize you're watching something special almost immediately. It's one of the most overlooked shows of all time, 
It lasts for five seasons. It has 62 episodes, and it actually got a proper conclusion. Please check it out when you can. It's also on Hulu. Check out the show. It's great. It kind of changed my life in a lot of weird ways. As for my favorite album, I think it's Worry by Jeff Rosenstock. It's loud, cathartic punk music that I sort of stumbled into during a vulnerable point in my life. He was an artist I became immediately obsessed with, and to date, he is my favorite show that I've ever been to. I love all of his solo albums, but Worry specifically feels like his tightest, most accomplished work. It's kind of like a modern London calling, with lyrics describing the rot of capitalism and modern American life, gentrification, police brutality, surveillance culture, and the rise of fascism. These are all themes that pop up throughout this album, and it feels bleak, but there's also a sense of solidarity and camaraderie that permeates the whole thing. There's a, there's a love for humanity that keeps it from being just this upsetting, overwhelmingly sad album. It feels angry, but righteously angry, not hopeless. All right, so that's every single thing about me. Now you know every single detail about my life. We are friends now. No, that's, that's not how it works. These are just things that I like. Those are my recommendations. I highly recommend you check those things out if you haven't done so already. And that's going to do it for today's episode. I truly appreciate your patience during the month of August, and I hope you stick around for the future. I know this wasn't the traditional format for the show, but I wanted to make sure that the next time I spoke with a guest, I was at no less than 100%. Thank you for indulging me on this one-sided conversation. It feels great to be back, and I'm so excited for the future of this show. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show, and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter, at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about any of the games I've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment, and I'll gladly read it on the show. If you want more solo episodes like this, that's the best place to tell me. If you want fewer solo episodes like this, that's still the best place to tell me, but maybe reach out privately so you don't make me look bad. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes, as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. The art for this show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at AveryRobinOtt. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work, as well as mine. Alright, I think that's it. At least for now. financially. I pay money to my ex-wife as part of our divorce settlement, among other bills. I just had no choice but to make you pay for lunch the other day. I'm really sorry.